Welcome to futureofuschinatrade.com. This is Molly Castellazzo. You're listening to an audio podcast of a telephone interview with Joseph Gagnon, who is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. Before joining the Peterson Institute in September of 2009, Joseph was a visiting associate director of the Division of Monetary Affairs at the U.S. Federal Reserve Board. He previously served at the U.S. Treasury Department and taught at the University of California's Haas School of Business. Joseph and I talked about his view on the size of the trade balance distortion caused by China's manipulation of its currency, the RMB. Joseph says that distortion amounts to $400 to $500 billion a year. We also talked about Joseph's views on what U.S. policymakers could do to eliminate that trade balance distortion. Joseph suggests taxing the assets that China buys in the U.S., a remedy he says is well within international law. Now, to our telephone conversation. My first question on on the currency valuation issue in general is... um, sort of set the stage, how undervalued is the RMB, do you think? And maybe a better question than that would be, how big of a problem is RMB undervaluation for for both the American economy, for the Chinese economy, for the world economy? Sort of set, set the stage with, what are, what are we talking about here? What's, what's the issue? Okay, so hard to know how undervalued the Indian is. Um, there are estimates out there, mm-hmm. um, and they range from zero to you know forty percent or so. So, and it's just it, it's not much disagreement on that. Um, my colleagues, some colleagues here, have said something like twenty percent, although that actually in turn depends on um, how. how assumptions about how big of a trade surplus they should have or a deficit or whatever. Um, I, I have taken a different approach, um, which is to say, well, it's hard to know what the exchange rate should be. Mm-hmm. But what we can measure, what we do know, is what the Chinese government is doing uh, to distort the trade balances directly. Because we know how much uh, it purchases in the foreign exchange market. And we know that because of the accounting identities that have to hold, we know that that equals the distortion in their current account, trade count. And so we may not know how much the Renminbi would have to move to eliminate that, but it doesn't matter because what we know is how much they're distorting the trade balance of their economy and the rest of the world. So I think that's the important thing. Um, we see that uh, in the first six months of this year, that was about $300 billion. And in the last three months, it shrank quite a bit, I think, for temporary factors. Uh, probably for the year as a whole, it might be around four or $500 billion. Okay. So that gives you a sense of the size of the problem, four to five hundred billion dollars. But the one other piece I'd like to add is that it's not just about China. Um, 
this is a strategy that China is the biggest example of, but is widespread across emerging and developing markets. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, estimates for this year that adding all these other countries in, not just China, we're talking about $1.2 trillion. And that does not include uh, some other, uh, uh, that's probably an underestimate because it does not include sovereign wealth funds of some oil exporters. It also does not include some of the uh, new emerging markets or, or, or some of the more advanced emerging markets like Korea, Singapore, Taiwan. So it could well be one and a half trillion dollars if you add it all in, of which China might be a third. Okay. So so is it, you know, it, it is that number, does that represent um, what, if if there were no distortions, would their trade surplus be lower by that amount and other countries, whether it's the U.S. or, or other trading partners, trade deficits or, or you know, trade, trade deficits would be also reduced by that amount? Is that how it works or? Yes, that's okay. exactly how it works. So then China's uh, trade surplus would be reduced by about $500 billion. You took the whole developing world broadly calculated, as I said, that would be maybe over a trillion, maybe as much as a trillion and a half dollars. And that is with respect to the advanced economies, but almost entirely we're talking about United States and Europe. Right. <clears throat> so, but including you know, a little bit of Canada, a little bit of Japan, Australia, but, but we're talking you know, mostly about the United States and Europe. So, so the U.S. trade balance would probably be higher by $500 billion. Europe would be higher by $500 billion. Japan, Canada, Australia would be higher by couple hundred billion. That's sort of what we're talking about here. It's not clear that it actually isn't, it doesn't have to be one for one because there's some scope for uh, financial markets to offset a bit of that, but the evidence suggests that that's pretty small. So the evidence suggests that the vast majority of that is being affecting the trade balances of the U.S. and Europe. Okay. And so 500 billion in terms of the US trade balance, that's a big number. It's a very big number. Right. Yeah. And I don't understand why this is getting more attention and I don't understand why the administration isn't more upset about this. And Congress is to some extent, but but I don't think it's widely perceived how big a problem well, and and certainly among the people I've spoken with, and and what I've read, you don't see everywhere. Certainly, you know, it, it's in some places the IMF and and what you've written, but um, you don't see everywhere the the discussion posed as you've posed it. You know that it's it has reduced. Or you know, it's a five hundred billion dollar impact, negative impact on the U.S. trade balance. You know, people talk about jobs and that sort of thing, but um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of you know, people are looking at the wrong thing, or they're saying, well, trying to estimate how much everything's undervalued, and it's hard to know. 
And then they say, well, even if it did, even if the Chinese let it appreciate 10 or 20 percent, you know, we, we wouldn't buy more. We wouldn't um, uh, sell more to China. What would happen is that we would switch from China to Indonesia or Vietnam or some other country. And, and there's some truth to that. But if you look at all those countries as a group, if they all change this behavior, there would be no other, it wouldn't be a matter of switching from China to Indonesia or vice versa, because they would all be appreciating against the dollar and the euro. And it would change the whole nature of trade between the U.S. and China. We'd find that, in fact, there are a lot of things that we would produce in the United States. A lot of large American companies have factories in China and in the U.S., mm-hmm. and the this would affect their decision as to where to put the next factory. And it would be very important. It would play out over a few years. It wouldn't happen overnight, but it would It would happen, you know, within... You'd see a lot of effect within the first year or two, and, and you would see continuing repercussions. So this is something we should aim for to change over a five to ten year period. Now, it's so... <clears throat> excuse me. It so it's clear then the the damaging effects on the U.S. economy, but it also seems clear the reasons why China has this currency manipulation policy. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, and 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 they have lots of arguments behind you know why they need it and why they shouldn't have to change it and that sort of thing, but. How, I mean, have you, you thought or written about how a, um, a freely floating or even simply a, a market-valued current RMB, how that would affect the Chinese economy and how that would in turn affect other economies? Yeah, well, I think, I think um, again, this is not something that China would change overnight, and in fact... I think that they're well aware of this problem themselves, right. and they're trying to change it. They're trying to move in that direction. But the thing is that the steps they're taking are awfully slow. In fact, they're so slow that they won't, uh, I don't think, measurably change things in five years. So that's too slow. So I think they, they understand the problem, and they're trying to address it, but their steps are still um, painfully slow and not going to be good. The problem's going to get worse or get better at this rate. So... So that's one thing. What, what could, well, it is true that they have they sort of stumbled into the strategy and it's worked. In other words, it's, it's basically subsidized their exports. It's given them growth and job creation in China, and they're happy with that. Uh, it's given them some large companies, large exporters in the world, and they're happy with that. But the alternative for China, and I think where they know they need to go down the road, is actually to develop their, their own domestic market in a, in a number of areas that are underdeveloped. Things like um, entertainment and you know, travel and tourism within China for the growing uh, middle class in China that might actually want to, um, you know, go out to see movie or go bowling or whatever, or you know, get get uh, do travel and tourism within China. I mean, a lot of people in China have never seen the Great Wall of China. You know, there'd be hotels, there'd be transportation infrastructure, there'd be. Um, a whole bunch of services that people would want, you know, beauty shops and, and all this kind of stuff that sort of is, is underdeveloped in China. As, as they're getting richer, they're going to need more of that. And they need to 
allow the financial market bank system to lend to entrepreneurs who want to start up those kind of businesses inside China. That's where they need to change their development strategy. They know that. But, you know, it's, it's hard to do because it's very decentralized. It tends to be smaller, mom-and-pop, you know, businesses and stuff. And it's not big, world-beating, exporting corporations, which give them a lot of pride and prestige. Right. And, and who have a lot of political influence. So it is a tough political transition to make from these powerful exporters who are very well uh, respected and heard to these plethora of hotels and restaurants and, you know, uh, you know uh, amusement parks and that kind of thing. I mean, just a whole bunch of things that, that we have in rich countries that they don't have. So that's where they need to go. I think they could do it, but it takes time. And I think we have to understand that. But I do think that so far they're not moving fast enough. And they had an excellent chance this past couple of years to move faster uh, because they were having actually too rapid growth for a while and inflationary pressures. And an excellent remedy for that is to let your currency appreciate more. But they didn't let it happen. And now uh, the future is more uncertain with the whole European debt crisis and everything. So I think they're more cautious now and less willing to move fast. And it's unfortunate that they missed an opportunity to do more. Okay. So from from the U.S. perspective, is there uh, is there something that the U.S. should do or you know, could slash should do to move China along more rapidly? Yes. So what I have argued is that the the thing that they're doing is not trade. It's not about trade policy. It's not about exports. You know, tariff, import tariffs or you know, or barriers. It's about their financial policy. They are buying up assets around the world, especially in the U.S. and Europe, and especially U.S. Treasury bills, but, you know, bonds of all types. Um, and that is how they push up the dollar, and it's how they subsidize their exports to us, how they keep their currency weak. Mm-hmm. And they, that is what they need to stop doing. So what I have argued is we should tax their purchases of U.S. assets. We should tell them in plain terms, we don't want your money, and, you know, we actually are going to tax it. And I think that would really be a shot across the bow, and it wouldn't forbid them from doing it, but it would certainly penalize, and it would send a sharp message. And the tax could be raised over time to make it incredibly, you know, painful, so they would stop. That would be my, my goal. Um, that is, tax the action, penalize the action. That is the problem. Without distorting trade, you know, without putting up trade there, just say, look, well, we're happy to buy Chinese imports, but you've got to stop, you know, buying these financial assets. You need to buy our exports. Okay. But, and I recognize that China, you know, when we look at all of the the holders of, of treasury debt, that China is not the biggest holder. It's certainly the biggest foreign holder. But right. but still, the the percentage of, of all treasury debt that China holds is not insignificant. No. So, I, I mean, can we say we don't want your money? Oh, of course you can. Look, the Federal Reserve, and it's a great line, Martin Wolf is here, I don't know if you have a columnist in the Central Times. Right. He says, 
that, um, you know, China has amassed this huge pile of U.S. treasuries, over $2 trillion of U.S. treasuries, after 10 years of hard labor, you know, people working hard to export all these, you know, products to U.S., and they finally pile up $2 trillion worth of U.S. treasuries, an amount which Ben Bernanke can create in a microsecond. In other words, the Federal Reserve could buy everything that China owns times 10 in a second. Right. So we don't need them to buy our treasuries. We have the Federal Reserve ready and willing to buy what's needed to keep the U.S. economy working. So that's just not a good The problem is that they have, in doing this, pushed the dollar up too high against their currency and made it impossible for us to export. Okay. So, now, of course, if we did have an export boom, right, and somehow unemployment got down below, you know, 5 or 6%, and we were, you know, the economy was overheating and all that, yeah, the Federal Reserve would let interest rates rise, and this export boom that I'm proposing would go a long way to, to making that day happen. But it wouldn't be a bad thing. In other words, to have higher interest rates because it's full employment, uh, is not a bad thing, right? And until we get to full employment, the Federal Reserve will not let interest rates rise. Right. So, I want to, I want to make sure that I understand because I, I actually my background is in economics, but the finance of it is is not my area of expertise. So, you know, certainly we we've always heard that. We need China and others to buy treasury securities to finance our deficit spending. Yeah, and that, and, that just gets it backwards. That, we need that like we need a hole in our head. Yeah. You know, that is the problem. The problem is that everyone has been buying U.S. assets because they want to invest in the U.S., and we actually don't have good uses for that money right now. We actually don't want to spend that money. We don't want to invest it here. So it's actually throwing people out of work. Okay. So it, it, it gets it backwards. So people talk, well, we have a trade deficit, so we have to finance it. No, no. We have the trade deficit because people are financing us, people are lending to us, right? If they stop lending to us, we will stop having a trade deficit. I see. Okay. And as far as the budget deficit goes, we will have a smaller budget deficit if people are working because they'll be paying taxes. And the Federal Reserve will fill the difference to keep the economy on even keel. So, in other words, there's no issue here of worrying about need to finance. There's no issue. Federal Reserve will do what's needed. Uh, and what we don't need is, is foreign finance. Uh, interesting. Okay. So, what... What are the chances, you know, even with the the currency bill that's now in the House and... Um, sorry, you're breaking up. Sorry, so, so even in terms of, you know, likelihood that we'll actually see, um, see the U.S. tax, um, tax Chinese assets in the U.S., what, what's the likelihood? Well, I, I think it's very low, but I think that's just, you know unfortunate that the uh, administration 
Right. Would would that have to go? Th- would that be legislation that would go through Congress, or could yeah, the president would, just? It would require it would require an act of Congress because um, uh, there's two parts. There's, we have a tax treaty with China, like we have tax treaties in many countries, and we'd have to amend that. You have to give them six months' notice on a certain schedule and stuff, and so and it would take an act of Congress to do that. The other thing is that. Um, there's also a law which Congress has changed that exempts foreign governments from being taxed. And again, Congress has changed. But none of this is against international law. And in fact, I would point out that countries like Brazil and Chile have long done this to try to discourage too much capital from going into their countries because they understand how harmful that can be. All I'm saying is that we should do what countries like Brazil and Chile are doing. And moreover, the IMF and the International Monetary Fund, which mm-hmm. are global sort of arbiter of these kind of international rules um, has recently even given its blessing to this kind of behavior under, under certain circumstances. If you look at the circumstances that they say it's okay, the country that fits them best is the United States. Uh, they don't talk about that. And people, people, because everyone just assumes the United States would never do it, but, but you know, we need to reassess that assumption because, in fact, based on the IMF's own criteria, the U.S. should do it. Okay. It's, again, it's not like the idea of taxing foreign capital is that unusual. Lots of countries do it now. It's been actually acknowledged as acceptable under certain circumstances. So because it, it's well within international law, it sounds like there wouldn't be any, any um, lawful or, or within the rules basis for retaliation from China. But would they retaliate anyway, do you think? Well, I think the thing is, if we, if we amended our tax treaty with China, if we, you know, canceled it with notice, um, you know, they could then uh, tax U.S. companies that operate in China, right? They could, they could raise taxes on them. But uh, we, they own 10 times as much assets to be taxed in the U.S. as we own in China. So it's very uneven. They, they could do it, but but it's only 10% of the assets that, that they have here. Okay. <clears throat> okay. And so if they taxed U.S.-owned assets in China, is that just financial assets, or would that include capital owned by U.S.-based companies? Well, in fact, it's almost only capital owned by U.S. companies because we have almost no financial assets in China. They don't let us. Right. So it's, I'm talking, when I talk about this, I'm talking about factories owned by U.S. companies in China. Right. They could be taxed. That's true. Um, but again, that, that, those factories that we own in China are less than 10% of the assets China owns in the U.S. So in other words, it would be very uneven if they did try to retaliate. Right, right. You know, they could tax or discourage you know, U.S. exports to China or whatever, but then we could retaliate. That would be illegal under international trade law, and we could retaliate on the trade side. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would prefer, I would hope that we would avoid a trade war because what we'd be doing would be illegal, and not only legal, but done by other countries. So, you know, we would be the first 